Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. Today, we're taking time out of our busy celebrity schedules to bring you part two of our discussion of the seventh Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I said no autographs. (laughs) Get back. (laughs) You better believe it, witches. Thanks to the kindness and insouciant charms of Sophie Biblio and Mrs. Friday Next of Two Bossy Dames, we've skyrocketed past 1,000 followers and henceforth have no friends, only fans. But we love our fans almost as much as we love our fame. And so we'll continue to make time for you, starting with the sorting chat. It was a really good idea to make the day that you wanted to speak real close to the mic, also the day that you spoke while holding a baby. Yeah. A nice combination. We should, yeah, speaking of which, we should set the scene because (laughs) this is a a silly thing. Oh, look at you. We are sitting in Marcel's backyard. It is a beautiful, sunny April day. And we have a special guest star. (laughs) It's just wants really badly to put this entire microphone inside of his mouth. So you're probably, you're probably going to hear from this guy. Can we give you something else to put in your mouth? The other piece of setting the scene that we should do is how far in the book we now are. So we have read up to the end of the chapter, The Deathly Hallows. And so what has happened um, that we will be discussing is our protagonist's raid on the ministry, their months of pointless camping, Ron's departure, the visit to Godric's Hollow, and uh, Ron's return, 
the destruction of the first Horcrux, or their first destroyed Horcrux, and uh, they're learning about the Deathly Hallows from Xenophilius Lovegood. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've gotten up to, so that's what we will be talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think we want to talk a little bit, starting off, about Ron. Yeah. Yeah, about sort of Ron's Ron's return and, and what you referred to a little earlier as Ron's redemption. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because we've been hard on Ron, not unjustly, because Ron has been everything from a whiny prat to a misogynist, useless sack of garbage. I'm just kidding. Maybe not garbage, but like, (laughs) just like a useless hack of a person. And that really comes to a head when he storms out on Harry and Hermione because he is unhappy with the way things have been going. And then... He really redeems himself when he comes back because not only does he just come back and sort of slip into old habits, he comes back with a really concerted effort to contribute meaningfully and to be a source of positivity and encouragement as opposed to just a whiny, boohooey little baby just a weight right like he's and i mean we have to acknowledge that a big part of it is the influence of the horcrux Mm -hmm. on him but it's the influence of the horcrux bringing out issues that ron has had Mm -hmm. throughout right issues of not feeling good enough issues of jealousy of harry you know self-esteem problems that have like seriously marred his ability to be a good friend and a helpful contributor to this very small community and um (laughs) you know it yeah, you love contributions to communities. Um, and so it's it's particularly meaningful that his return and his redemption has to involve him coming face to face with all of those insecurities, right? Yeah. Actually just sort of facing those up and recognizing that they are things that are not true and things that he will not let mm-hmm. slow him down anymore. Yes. Um, and so that is, you know, that's a really, really important scene for Ron. And he, th- he becomes a meaningfully different character in the wake of that. We also want to talk a little bit about uh, what Harry and Hermione's friendship is like while Ron isn't around. <laughs> because in the absence of Ron, we get this really this really lovely sense of emotional intimacy between Harry and Hermione. I, for one, think that at least part of it is that without Ron, they're sort of charging their relationship in a particularly gendered way, which is to say, you know, his attraction towards Hermione and his jealousy of Harry, meaning that Harry and Hermione can't relate to each other as anything but potential sexual rivals. Yeah. With Ron's absence, they can just be like siblings, which is how they actually feel about each other. Yeah. And they suddenly just become these really like caring, tender, thoughtful friends. Yeah. I think my favorite part of it, that is the fact that the position that she takes in this relationship with Harry is one of like not maternal caring but of like a sisterly caring and in a like looking out for you kind of way yeah yeah and just all of these gestures towards him that are so you know the moment when um when he's obviously wishing he had something to lay on his parents grave and she makes a wreath of roses for him to put on it Mm. or the moment you know when he's obviously upset and she doesn't say anything she knows he doesn't want to talk but she just like gently runs her hand across his hair like it's not maternal care like those weird Ginny moments in the movie it's like tying his fucking shoes um and it's not yeah it's not romantic it's just like it's just friendship it's just like really really lovely watching out for each other oh pretty into that um okay last note about since this is since this 
whole section that we read is almost entirely just about these three characters. So let's end with one last note about these three characters. We get that moment after they found out about the Deathly Hollows, where each one of them, they're like, well, it's obvious which one you would most want to have, right? And Rom wants the wand, Hermione wants the cloak, Harry wants the resurrection stone. And that, see, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that choice to sort of set these three characters up as being like paradigmatically different from each other in that way as sort of each representing a certain approach to solving problems. I guess the other thing that's really interesting about that is that um, Hermione is the only one who chooses the thing that they already have, right? Which is just so telling about her as a as a practical and capable and competent person who like sees what she has at her disposal and makes use of it. I mean, the book definitely tells us that which hallow they desire um, tells like says a lot about them, yeah. um, and that's obviously true. But I feel like it's maybe more true than the book yeah. is suggesting. And also, I mean, maybe this is something to talk about in Granger Danger, but it's too late. We already talked about it now. Um, it also kind of sets Hermione up as the actual hero. Oh yeah, yeah. Since that's like the heroic brother is the one who chooses the cloak, and Hermione's like, yeah, yeah, yeah cloak all the way. I get how this works. Yeah, uh, I read the story. <laughs> I understand how narrative works. All right, there was one other sort of different topic thing you wanted to talk about in the sorting chat, and that was Potter Watch, which I will confess, having never read this book before, I had not realized that Edmonton Potter Watch was named after a thing in the books. I just never got it. Um, yeah, but you wanted to talk in particular about, so we get our first um, Potter Watch broadcast being represented in the Deathly Hallows chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is significant about that is that, you know, we are re-encountering a bunch of our favorite characters who are now embodying <laughs> their resistance in this particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 100% male characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have, <laughs> I have so much I want to say about that. Will you let me say it, kiddo? Yes. Okay, good. This brings to mind a couple of things for me. And uh, the first one is the fact that it reminds me of our earlier discussions about the types of um, labor that women perform in resistance movements, right? So men are able to do this kind of reporting work, reportage, journalism, um, keeping spirits up, that kind of thing. Whereas the women do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, right? They do like Mrs. Weasley, they do the cooking and the cleaning. And that's, it's also not historically accurate because women in situations of war, women did a lot of the frontline reportage. Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely did. Particularly in the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Decrinosaurus and all of our other Spanish Civil War peeps. (laughs) So one of the other things that occurred to me when I was um, when I was reading that and thinking about it is the fact that it so clearly emulates the podcast and radio world, which we've been talking about a lot lately, in that it is largely dominated by male voices, right? And we see this very much reflected here. Um, and I don't think that these things are unrelated. I think that we do live in a world where the stories are largely told by men. And we would need to live in a very different world if women were the ones who were, mm. by and large, telling those stories. Yeah. Um, so, well, Which is indicated by the fact that when you tried to think, or when we just, before recording, tried to think of which female characters mm-hmm. would be featured on Potter Watch, we were like, Tonks? 
who I guess can't because she's pregnant. And as we no, all know, women can't speak while pregnant. No, women are not allowed to leave the house, which yeah. is why witch please didn't exist for the entire duration of my pregnancy. Well, we can record this in their house. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm so confused. <laughs> what are what are technologies? <laughs> The best thing about being a genuine internet celebrity is that rather than mourning the death of the book, I can basically dance a jig on its grave. The internet is the future, and I'm never even going to look at a book again, except, I guess, in Flourish and Blots, where we talk about print culture a whole bunch. So let's talk about pamphlets. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about the pamphlets that the ministry is making that Harry sees being produced in the Ministry of Magic uh, during their raid on the ministry. Yeah. All I can really say about that is how inefficient wizards are at making pamphlets, because isn't it just like row after row after row of desks of wizards doing them by hand, which I know technically is by wand, but like, it's just, you'd think that they would have come up with a more rapid fire system than that. It's just fascinating to me the way that print as a mass production medium is represented in the wizarding world because mass production right so it's like mechanical reproduction right the mechanical reproduction of the print object which is one of the fundamental characteristics of print is that it's a single copy that is being mechanically reproduced in ostensibly identical forms over and over again right as opposed to handwriting or orality which change you know manuscript culture changes from iteration to iteration these are sweeping generalizations but you know that's that's the thing that makes print unique um and so in the representations of print in the wizarding world, the book's still trying to set up a scene of mechanical reproduction to maintain that really important sort of medium specific characteristic of print, mm-hmm. right? That they still, the book is still reproducing for us scenes of mechanical reproduction, but mechanical reproduction makes no sense in the wizarding world. <laughs> Nothing else is mechanically reproduced. There's no original that's being stamped onto Mm -hmm. the pages like it's very it's very confusing (laughs) to represent mechanical reproduction in a magical world in which the principles aren't the same Mm -hmm. yeah yeah we should also talk about the um the aesthetic of the pamphlet as well i noticed that it has a big red rose on it which is being yeah yeah it's on uh it's there i've got the page i need to read it (laughs) okay so uh so the pamphlet itself has a picture of a red rose, which, as we all know, the rose stands for England, mm-hmm. right? And it has a simpering face, which I think is just just says so much about umbrage, um, in the middle of its petals, and it's being strangled by a green weed with fangs and a scowl. So, Hannah, tell me about that. <laughs> Interpret that text for me. It's anti-muggle propaganda, obviously. That's what's being reproduced for us here, or sort of images of how the rose of england is being destroyed by the muggle threat but that's really fascinating to sort of reproduce like to make sorry the wizard discourse of purity to attach that to british nationalism Mm -hmm. is a really strange interesting (laughs) choice there right and in general to to be reproducing through the sorts of pamphlet culture to reproduce wizard supremacy as a discourse of nationalism and national purity. I mean, 
I think it's an important reminder that as Nazi-ish as Voldemort seems, I don't think it is a dir- I don't think his rise to power is a direct parable for Nazi power. I think that it's actually looking at like 1980s British fascism, which was tied in very strongly with a sort of extreme right white supremacist bent. Yeah. Yeah, and then we get another scene of mechanical reproduction when they go and visit Xenophilius Lovegood and see him printing his uh his magazine at home with his with his home printing press which is like he uses a printing press but the printing press in Lovegood's home is sort of stands in as um as a symbol of his eccentricity, right? Whereas the version of reproduction that the Ministry of Magic is is performing is sort of more modern and more clean. And yet, so yes, yeah, no, it's absolutely perplexing to me that they the the way that print appears to work, right? It's the description of it. They were all waving and twiddling their wands in unison and squares of colored paper were flying in every direction like little pink kites. After a few seconds, Harry realized there was a rhythm to the proceedings and the papers all formed the same pattern. And after a few more seconds, he realized that what he was watching was the creation of pamphlets. The paper squares were pages, which when assembled, folded and magicked into place, fell into neat stacks beside each witch or wizard. I mean, it's just high speed zine making. There's got to be a better way. All right. You want to talk about marginalia. I do. I do want to talk about marginalia because in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, we encountered the the incredible power of marginalia. And we talked a lot about the ways in which um, marginalia contributes to a book and contributes to the overall experience of a book and reading a book. And Hermione was deeply suspicious of that copy of um, po- the advanced potions making, which we interpreted as her reluctance to trust marginalia and her um, refusal to see marginalia as even on par with the authority of the printed text. And I think we're seeing that again in this book with uh, the copy of the Tales of Beetle the Bard that Dumbledore leaves to Hermione. So Hermione notices that on top of the story of the three brothers, there is a little marking, which she at first thinks is, you know, just a a picture that's part of the text. But then when she discovers that it's not original to the printing, uh, she describes it as follows. It's been inked in. Look, somebody's drawn it there. It isn't really part of the book. (laughs) Which I was like, oh, (laughs) stay true. You stay true to you, Hermione. That's amazing. (laughs) And Hermione's uh, resistance to marginalia um, comes up again a little while later when they're in Godric's Hollow and they're outside of Harry's um, childhood home. And that sign, the sign pops up where all of the witches and wizards who had come to see the place where the boy who lived had escaped uh, had signed their names or written a little message of encouragement or something. And then, like, bless Hermione, she says they shouldn't have written on the sign. So, like, they've ruined it somehow. Anyway, which I just found was so telling. Anyway, the reason I wanted to talk about marginalia in the context of this book and in the context of uh, the Tales of Beetle the Bard is because marginalia is the key to figuring out what it is that Dumbledore wanted them to know, right? So Dumbledore gave Hermione his own personally annotated copy of the Tales of Beetle the Bard, um, 
well, we haven't, since we haven't finished the book, we don't exactly know what his plot was, but we know that... I genuinely don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But we know that there was some reason to it. Um, And we know that that symbol, which had been inked in, is significant to figuring out what the Hallows represent. Mere moments ago, I was saying, you know, there's this distinction between manuscript culture and print culture, which is print culture is the same thing getting iterated in identical forms over and over and manuscript culture things change from version to version but one of the key characteristics of print is that you can impose manuscript culture onto print that's what marginalia does and it means that despite the sort of ostensible identity of every print object they actually become different when we engage with them right we interact with them and imprint them with meaning and that is like that's the function that print objects have in the wizarding world, the print that is reproduced identically tends to be the print that's aligned with oppressive forces, Mm -hmm. whereas the print that has a sort of more important role in the lives of the characters is print that is lived in, that's marked up, that has Mm -hmm. marginalia, that it's about the sort of the interaction with text and the sort of like deriving further meanings from them, interpretation, really, Mm -hmm. right? And our sort of our own, the way our interpretation always sort of distorts or reshapes the text we're interacting with, Mm -hmm. right? Which comes, I mean, what the Deathly Hallows marked on that particular story is, is an interpretation of what that story means, right? And then we get the characters Mm -hmm. actually discussing the interpretation of that story and whether or not the story of the three brothers is a real story, Mm -hmm. is an actual sort of distorted true story about things that really exist, Mm -hmm. or if it's purely myth. And that debate, reality versus myth, then also becomes a debate. What does this marking signify? Mm -hmm. Is it an interpretation or like a sort of correct interpretation? Mm -hmm. Or is it a conspiracy theory? Mm -hmm. And that brings us back to a very important lesson, which is that signifiers are arbitrary. (laughs) Because we remember uh, the way that Xenophilius Lovegood scoffs at the notion that that symbol is dark in and of itself. And arguing that it isn't, that there's nothing, there's nothing evil or wicked about the Deathly Hallows. But for Crumb, um, who I guess lived in a much more present relationship to, uh, to the aftermath of Grindelwald's rise to power, uh, it is, it is a symbol of violence and of, and of evil. Um, which, I mean, I, I, we could talk about this in Jewwatch, but is so um, similar to the notion of the swastika, which is like really important to a lot of Eastern religions. And that was appropriated by the Nazi party and has become, for, for those of us who didn't have the swastika in our lives um, beforehand, uh, becomes to us a representation of Nazism and of violence and, uh, and anti-Semitism, right? But then gets reappropriated by hippies who want to sort of reclaim its originary meaning. Mm -hmm. So, like, you do get instances of hippies wearing swastikas because they insist that they are reclaiming its originary meaning and sort of, like, taking it back from the Nazis. And this is exactly what happens with the Deathly Hallows, right? You know, it starts off as a sort of... As a symbol for something else, you know, something sort of maybe like mythical meaning that gets appropriated by this sort of fascist group. And then uh, and then you've got hippies trying to sort of reclaim it in honor yeah. of its originary meaning, not particularly caring about the ways that it might be like a really frightening symbol to people who lived through mm-hmm. the actual regime that was deploying it. So like, 
Riddle me this, McGregor. <laughs> Can things be reappropriated? I mean, like, probably. Like, in history, symbols, because because signifiers are arbitrary, they mean different things all the time. You just need enough people to consent to what the new meaning of something is going to be, and then it means that thing, right? Because meaning is just arrived at collectively. It's not inherent in the actual symbol itself. Um, but when an object becomes as deeply imbued with a particular meaning as something like the swastika is, it's going to take a really, really long time for that symbol to be meaningfully reappropriated. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. The actual best thing about being an internet celebrity is never having to listen to a man talk again. Uh, except, of course, in The Boy Who Narrated, where we talk almost entirely about Harry's narrative voice. <laughs> okay, so we have a, we have like a, kind of like a list of things that we just want to cover here because at this point in the book, we're really looking at just like a list of things that um, Harry didn't really know. <laughs> <laughs> that we're encountering for the yeah. first time through Harry, who is encountering them for the first time. So it's kind of it's kind of funny. So like the fact that Dean Thomas is possibly Muggle-born. Yeah. Um, he was raised by a Muggle family. But what's really interesting is um, if if Dean Thomas is Muggle-born, why was he never subject to the same kinds of like violence and vitriol that Hermione was subject to um, throughout the earlier books, right? Yeah. yeah. Is it that Harry just didn't see Dean going through it and so it never got reported to us? Mm -hmm. Or is it, as you suggested, might be the case that Hermione is doubly vulnerable to accusations of being a mudblood because she's a woman? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, listeners, you know where we are leaning. <laughs> Uh, so there's that. There's also this incredible moment where Harry is wallowing in self-pity and self-doubt about whether Dumbledore actually cared about him. I mean, so much of this book is Harry yeah. wallowing in self-doubt. Self <laughs> yeah. um, but there's this incredible moment where when Harry learns about the connection that both he and Dumbledore have to Godric's Hollow, he then um, starts to think about all the things that he and Dumbledore could have done together. They could have visited the place together, but then he remembers that no, it obviously wasn't important to Dumbledore that they shared this connection, and it was probably unimportant to him, and he never even cared, and Dumbledore didn't even like me anyway. Yeah. So that's funny. Yeah, It's part of this larger thing we have see happening with Harry. Like, he spent the first six books really believing he was special. Mm -hmm. So to find out that, you know, that maybe this wasn't all about him, that maybe Dumbledore was just using him, that maybe there's stuff that matters to him that didn't matter to Dumbledore, that maybe, that maybe people's lives extend beyond him. It seems to be the really shocking revelation for him. And that's really a shocking revelation because he's been allowed to be the protagonist of his own life mm -hmm. for the first six books. And now it's sort of ironic because he's been set on his own to be this like savior figure and that is absolutely terrifying mm -hmm. it's super hard mm -hmm. and it's causing him to become like really really disillusioned mm -hmm. but one of the forms that that disillusionment takes right so he's he's angry at Dumbledore and he's particularly there's a scene where he he starts yelling about um how Dumbledore you know never told him anything and never actually explained how things worked 
um, and just demanded his blind trust, just constantly demanded that Harry trust him blindly, right? Which is ironic considering in the last book, Harry was very proud of his blind trust in Dumbledore. And I think that that, that Harry's former pride in this is one reason to, to believe that Harry's current anger is just a matter of, of perspective rather than a, like, an actual truth about Dumbledore and how he treated Harry. But also the fact that very shortly after this, Harry finds out about the Deathly Hallows and immediately becomes like a semi-religious fanatic about the Deathly Hallows, right? He becomes obsessed with them almost instantly. And I use the word obsession because Harry uses that word against Ron and Hermione, Mm -hmm. accusing them of being obsessed with the Horcruxes, which Harry was until very recently obsessed with. But he's found out about the Deathly Hallows, and now that's the only thing that matters to him, and that's the only story he's interested in, and he's putting 100% of his faith in those, and he's absolutely positive that that's what Dumbledore wanted him to find all along, and that's the secret mission of their entire quest, and it doesn't matter if the story doesn't really add up. And when Hermione points out, if this was the case, why wouldn't Dumbledore have just told Harry? And Harry's response is, well, he wanted me to figure it out. As though that wasn't exactly the thing that Harry was livid about when it came to the Horcruxes, yeah. right? So now that it's the Deathly Hallows, he's like, no, 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 It's okay. It's a quest. Yep. Yeah. It's like, it's really pleasant to put your faith in something when it's working. And it's really unpleasant to put your, your faith in it when it's not working. And we see that playing out for Harry through this part of the book, that he is so willing to put his faith in things until they become discouraging. And then he gets so fucking disillusioned so quickly when his faith doesn't turn, doesn't almost immediately turn into successes for him, doesn't pay off. I would call that a character weakness. <laughs> yeah. So now now that we're into this discussion about the Horcruxes and the Hallows, this, of course, brings us back to Ron and Hermione and the ways that they, the ways that the three of them are dealing with these with these stories right and with the information that they've been given so true to character we have Hermione who um, despite all of the uh, lessons that she's learned about the ways in which authority can abuse printed text still believes in grand narratives right so in encountering the story about the three brothers at the end of the day she still sees that as a tale and as a story but not as fact Ron, on the other hand, and this is one of the things that really endeared me to him in this book, Ron, who has grown up in the presence of these kinds of stories and tales um, told to him by his mother, has a kind of faith in oral history, right? Which, and I know that the tale of the three brothers is a written story, but it's connected to this oral narrative surrounding the elder wand or the death stick or the like whatever dick of destruction that wand is supposed to be. <laughs> the is definitely the dick of destruction. The dick. Yeah. <laughs> the dick of destruction. And Ron points out to Hermione that uh, not unlike the Deathly Hallows, the Chamber of Secrets is also supposed to be a myth, right? Yeah. Um, so, so there's this really fascinating back and forth that's going on between Ron, who is like, well, just because it is a myth doesn't mean it's not real. And Hermione's sort of deep need to believe in the authority of a master narrative or a grand narrative. Yeah. And then Harry, who's kind of, Harry's doing his own thing right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I just think Harry's like going through like, 
like a theological crisis. Like I really do think that one of the main things that's happening for Harry in the story is a shifting relation to God. I think you're right about that. So one of the really important early lessons that Harry learned from Dumbledore was that it was important to not to be afraid of words, mm-hmm. that it was okay. You know, signifiers are arbitrary. Words don't have inherent power or inherent meanings. They have the meanings and power that you imbue them with, right? That sort of, we talked about this as a the way that ideology conflates signifier and signified, and that critical thinking allows you to prize those things apart. Mm-hmm. And so it seems really significant that right at this stage, as Harry is struggling with his faith in Dumbledore and with his belief in the lessons Dumbledore taught him, that Voldemort's name all of a sudden has significantly changed its status. Mm -hmm. That it was indeed a powerless word before that had power only because people granted the word that power. Mm -hmm. But now it has real power Mm -hmm. because the Death Eaters have put a taboo on it. And we see that that turns out to be the reason that they were so easily tracked after the Death Eaters arrived at the wedding. And um, right at the end of the chapter we read up to, Harry insists, I don't know, to prove that he's super brave or whatever, insists on using Voldemort's name. And then instantly Death Eaters arrive. On the one hand, I think that it's a reminder that like words might not have inherent power, but words are also not meaningless. And that things can be done with them that are violent and that do have real power in the world. And that this is an example of that. And I don't know, like, it might also be just another moment in which, like, Harry is not particularly good at adapting to changing situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I'm willing to give Harry the benefit of the doubt in thinking that he said Voldemort's name by accident. Harry is the type who gets wound up. Harry gets wound up, yes. (laughs) But the fact remains that signifiers are arbitrary, but words are not meaningless. And you can do incredible violence with words, Mm -hmm. which we see earlier in the the series with the use of the term mudblood, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We learned that in book two. And this, I think, is, is the logical extension of that, right? The words that you use can actually land you in prison. Yeah, which is a real thing about words. I think it's also significant that the the fear of Voldemort that people had before was a sort of mythical fear, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he'll hear you. And the fear, the what the word Voldemort is now is not a sort of mythical thing. It is, I mean, it's an actual function of the word now, right? And those are different things. It's that shift from Voldemort being sort of a monster figure to being... A fascist leader mm-hmm. right which is a monster of a different kind yeah yeah it is it is a marker of a fascist government that uh the words that you use can land you in jail <gasps> and then the last thing that we wanted to talk about oh, was yeah. uh harry's invisibility cloak yeah so like you know several books ago <laughs> we see harry getting introduced to this magical world and being told that, you know, everything he thought was true about the world is not true. And that there's magic all around him. And all of these things are magical and wonderful. And the realization that the invisibility cloak is not just an everyday magical object, but may in fact be one of the Deathly Hallows. It's a really interesting moment because it reminds us that for somebody coming from the muggle world into the wizarding world, how are they supposed to tell the difference between everyday magic of the wizarding world and special super cool mythical magic that doesn't exist anywhere else and that nobody else is encountering Mm -hmm. like how could he possibly have known that the invisibility cloak 
was unlike any other invisibility cloak, like this fairy tale object, Mm -hmm. because as far as he's concerned, everything around him (laughs) is magical. So like, how would you even know that? How indeed. I've got it this time. The best, best thing about being internet celebrities is that we can finally quit our dumb day jobs as instructors and put the grueling work of pedagogy behind us. So long, pedagogy. It's time for potions class. Shit. Apparently, it was an egregious omission on our part to not uh, comment on the death of Alistair Moody. And like, fair enough. Compassion fatigue is real, but like, you know, his his death was only one of two significant deaths in the first section. So like, maybe we could have talked about both. Yeah. And the other one was an owl. (laughs) How dare you? People were genuinely moved. I know. As was I. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, the loss of Moody, I I mean, Moody's never a character I particularly felt drawn to. Um, Any any ways in which I might have liked Moody in uh, A Goblet of Fire get really undermined when you find out that that was a moody that was secretly a murderer <laughs> um yeah it really like complicates your ability oh <laughs> what it really complicates your ability to mourn for someone when you find out that they weren't the person who you believe them to be right oh, yes uh let me backtrack a bit so this is me talking about my relationship to moody not to the character's relationship to moody okay so as long as everybody's everybody gets that um this happens quite a bit where when someone who is important dies a lot of information comes out about them and sometimes that information that comes out about them um makes you question everything you knew to be true i mean this happened this is literally happening with dumbledore like right now in the book um, but I think with Moody, what what is happening with us as readers is we have a kind of attachment to the Moody who we knew from Goblet of Fire, but that wasn't Moody, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, how do we mourn the loss of a teacher who never taught us? Yeah, yeah. The what the one moment and the reason why I sort of noted to talk about it this time, the one moment that really sort of brought home the indignity of Moody's death. And I think in general, the indignity of death when you are living under a regime in which you are not allowed to publicly mourn Mm -hmm. those who die Mm -hmm. is when they're in the ministry and Harry finds Moody's eye Mm -hmm. in Umbridge's door, which is monstrous. Like it's a particularly ugly moment. Um, But I think more more generally, this book is inviting us to think about how it is that within the context of, you know, how, how certain kinds of grief are illegitimized by the regime you live under mm-hmm. and there are some kinds of mourning that are acceptable and that are celebrated publicly and there are some kinds of mourning that are not mm-hmm. and they haven't really had a chance to mourn moody mm-hmm. because when would you and how would you that morning is moody is not a publicly grievable figure mm-hmm. in the context of voldemort's reign but the seriousness of that is the degree to which moody has been rendered ungrievable really comes home in the fact that his body is literally pulled apart and used in support of the very thing he was fighting. Yeah. I think that Harry's burying of Moody's eye is fitting. I think that the Alistair Moody, who we barely knew ye, um, 
he is was not the type of person who would have wanted a grand splendid funeral the way that Dumbledore had one right not to say that Dumbledore wanted that either but like who even knows I think that he would actually have been quite satisfied yeah no I think that was fitting fitting morning for him Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. So the main thing I think we want to talk about for this episode um, in Potions class is um, everything that we see our three protagonists going through in this middle part of the book where they are wandering in the woods for months and months on their own for the first time with no teachers to guide them, with no school to regulate their time, with no authority figures to tell them if they're doing it right or wrong is the degree to which it is a powerful metaphor for grad school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And specifically the amount of self doubt that they all experience is such a, such a, a powerful metaphor for imposter syndrome, which if you've never had imposter syndrome, you're lying <laughs> or a sociopath or a sociopath. Um, yeah. There's that, there's this incredible moment after Ron has left and Harry is on his own, he's feeling wallowy and self-pity-y about Dumbledore. And he is thinking about his, and I quote, own presumption in accepting his friend's offers to accompany him on this meandering, pointless journey. He knew nothing, he had no ideas, and he was constantly, painfully on alert for any indication that Hermione too was about to tell him that she had had enough and that she was leaving. Oh, I mean, this is so much what it is like when you are at a point in your various research projects or writing where you feel like you don't know anything. You're at a point where you're like, I should have figured this out by now. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm writing. Nobody likes me. My supervisor thinks I'm stupid. I'm going to get kicked out of the program any day now. I mean, that's just what yeah. that's just what grad school is like. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's that movement from a sort of regulated environment in which you're receiving constant feedback, um, constant guidance, just like authority figures there who resist them as you will still become something to resist, right? Um, and uh, the drooliest face. And then to suddenly be on your own, no matter how much you've been agitating for it, no matter how much you've been insisting that you're ready to be on your own, that you can do this by yourself, that you're tired of authority figures telling you what to do. It's fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like being an adult too, right? It's like moving out for the first time where you're like, I 
I'm so tired of people telling me what to do. I can do this on my own. And then you get out and you're like, how do people adult? I don't know how to adult. Does everybody else know how to adult? Is somebody going to notice that I don't know what I'm doing? Is somebody going to find out that I never figured out how to fold a fitted sheet? That I'm 31 years old and I still just crumple fitted sheets into a ball and then shove them in a drawer? You know... I just learned how to fold a fitted sheet. Will I learn when I turn 32? Yeah, yeah. A magical sheet fairy visits you on your birthday and is like, here you go. You're an adult now. (laughs) Yeah, but it's just, I mean, it reminds me of grad school, these passages, but also it reminds me of living on my own for the first time. And that's just, it's so, it's so scary, those first experiences of independence. And it doesn't end that feeling that like everybody else thinks you know what you're doing and that you know that you don't know what you're doing but you really have to pretend that you know what you're doing because if everybody else finds out how little you know what you're doing nobody's gonna like you anymore and they're all gonna leave you (laughs) that's that's a powerfully familiar feeling (laughs) Uh, never mind we're both super competent moving on Ha! Privilege! That's the best thing about fame. Now that we're celebrities, we never have to think about systemic oppression, racialization, white supremacy, fascism, any of those boring downer subjects. We can just hang out in the forbidden forest and talk about, like, goblins and how they aren't a metaphor for anything. So, Hannah, you wanted to talk about the change in the fountain, right? From that idea of multiculturalism to totalitarianism. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this because we first encounter um, the first time that Harry goes to the Ministry of Magic. um, He encounters this fountain. And the fountain is a representation of, I mean, it's a representation of multiculturalism within the wizarding world. So it's, you know, a witch and a wizard and a centaur Mm -hmm. and a house elf Mm -hmm and maybe a goblin um and they're all like united happily together but specifically all of the non-humans are gazing at the humans adoringly because everybody has their place and it's a sort of naturalized hierarchy and Dumbledore says to Harry that that fountain is a lie Mm -hmm. and that fountain gets destroyed and that fountain represents the sort of myth of power in the pre-Voldemort or sort of intermediary world. When I say that it's multiculturalism, what I mean is that it's playing on the same myths that multiculturalism in general plays on, which is this sort of fantasy of a radically inclusive society in which everybody is united despite their differences Mm -hmm. and meaningful difference is only a sort of surface gloss and that underneath that we all can sort of have the same rights and function similarly you know, within a sort of a total, a totally equal society. It's a sort of liberal fantasy. So like, not fundamentally dismantling things like racism and patriarchy, but rather, all people of color are just like white people. Mm -hmm. And women are just like men. Yeah, so that's the sort of fantasy of the wizarding world that the first fountain represents. And that gets destroyed and its destruction is sort of part of the revelation of the corruption of that government, of the government under fudge, and how in order to maintain that fantasy of the sort of peaceful multicultural society, you just need to constantly lie about what is actually going on. And what it's replaced with, interestingly, is a very honest 
fountain. <laughs> a fountain that is a very accurate representation of the way that power works under the new regime. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the fountain that now occupies the atrium in the ministry is um, a gigantic statue of black stone. Um, says it was rather frightening this vast sculpture of a witch and a wizard sitting on ornately carved thrones, looking down at the ministry workers, toppling out of fireplaces below them. Engraved in foot high letters at the base of the statue were the words, Magic is Might. So, in lieu of this sort of fantasy of multiculturalism and diversity, and this fantasy that the sort of exactly the same systems, which is a ministry of magic that privileges witches and wizards and sort of makes everybody else a sort of lesser subject that has been replaced by a version of power that just outright says oh yeah yeah, no no anybody who isn't a pure-blood witch or wizard is a lesser subject what it makes me think about is is the sort of those old um truisms about the difference between racism in the southern United States and the northern United States, which is somebody once said that the difference between white people in the north and white people in the south is that white people in the north pretend they aren't racist. Ah. That white supremacy exists equally in liberal urban spaces as it exists in rural conservative spaces, because we all live under white supremacy. And one of the meaningful differences is the degree to which it is overtly performed or not right and i think we see a a similar though and certainly not a sort of directly reproduced but a similar function happening between the sort of fantasy of multiculturalism under fudge versus the just overt fascism under voldemort Mm -hmm. and i thought those the the destruction of the one statue and its replacement was an interesting way of those things playing out on the topic of statues we have Another statue, right? We have the um, the War Memorial in Godric's Hollow, which on the surface appears to be an obelisk coded in the names of uh, that little town or hamlet's um, fallen soldiers, uh, ostensibly from World War One and or World War Two. But then when you pass it, if you are a witch or a wizard, uh, you see that it's actually a monument um, dedicated to Harry and his and his parents, which I, I find I find really, really interesting. This this comparison between a memorial for presumably dozens of dead versus three very significant dead. And I think this is especially interesting given the narratives of the importance of wizards and the disposability of muggles that are happening in this in this book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so even though this isn't, even though the statue isn't in any way supposed to represent uh, the superiority of wizards over muggles, just in the fact that there are three three individual magical people mm-hmm. whom we know by name mm-hmm. on one side, but then on the other side, just scores of people who who don't get a mention. I don't know, like that that feels really significant to me. Yeah. It's mirrored in the Potter Watch broadcast that we get to hear in which each of the magical dead are named and the muggle dead are unnamed. And while they give a moment of silence to the muggle dead as well, their lack of naming renders them a sort of anonymous side effect, right? And that's reproduced within the narrative because even though we know that muggles are dying, we don't ever meet any of those muggles. Um, they are never rendered meaningful f- 
for us as characters. The characters who we care about are always magical characters. And so the deaths that matter are the deaths of individual identifiable magic characters. Like Tonks' dad. Oh, Which is so sad. Ted Tonks. Yeah, and it, it brings us back to the sort of larger question of mourning within the wizarding world, right? right? And the sort of the specialness of the individual within the wizarding world, um, whereas the muggles continue to be these sort of just just others. Mm-hmm. You wanted to talk about the hearings. Yeah, I do. Um, I was really, really um, captivated by the ways in which bureaucracy can be deployed against you when you are deemed to be less human, mm-hmm. right? And so in particular, I, I was noticing the questions that Dolores Umbridge was asking Mrs. Kettermole. And you, Hannah, pointed out that those questions are actually a direct reference to Spanish Inquisition witch burnings, which is hugely ironic mm-hmm. and not a thing that I caught. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I know this is because I vividly remember a research project I did in high school about witch burnings and the kinds of questions that they would ask, like the very sort of specific design of the interrogations to make it impossible to prove your innocence. You know, the classic, um, how long have you been beating your wife? Mm -hmm. Questions that you can't answer, except in a way that further implicates you. My friends and I made a parody video about witch burning trials um which will always stay with me so it's it's significant that the techniques that are being used by the muggle-born registration commission are spanish inquisition-esque techniques but are also the techniques that have been used against witches in human history and that seems like it must be a sort of deliberate reversal there right and it, it carries on the conversation we were having in the last episode about the complexities of thinking through the violence of wizards against muggles when we know that that violence stems from wizards having also been the subjects of violence from muggles themselves. Mm. And so to see, you know, this fascist wizarding regime, which insists that wizards can reclaim power that has been stripped away from them, using against their perceived oppressors the very techniques that those oppressors use against them, mm-hmm. seems to me to be amongst other things, a significant commentary on how power always corrupts, mm-hmm. right? Like whoever was originally in the position of the oppressed, you know, the desire for power over the other always leads to these kinds of violence. It's that, uh, is that Audrey Lord? Who's who said you can't use the master's tools to tear down the master's yeah, house. Yeah. Which I hear some people saying like, Oh no, you can. And I'm like, no, nah, no. not convinced that would work, which I think we see playing out in those Inquisition scenes, which leads us into the conversation we need to have about, wait, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, Jew-watch? Okay, so unlike many of the previous books, I think there's actually a lot to say in this section about, well, I mean, sorry, let me start off by just clarifying that there are no Jews in this section of the book. However, As we already talked about, the symbol of the Deathly Hallows standing in as a kind of um, parallel to the swastika. We also get this um, probably not intentional reference to, to Judaism, but something that I think is nevertheless really important to point out. And it is in the Potter Watch broadcast when uh, Lee Jordan is 
pointedly asking Kingsley Shacklebolt, what would you say to people who suggest it should be wizards first? Like, why should people be protecting muggles? And uh, Kingsley replies that we're all human, aren't we? Every life is worth the same and worth saving. And there's there's a really important tenet to Judaism, which is that the most important thing and the most holy thing you can do is to save a life, which, again, I don't think that that's necessarily um, a direct allusion to Judaism. But I thought it was really important to point out because so much of what we talk about in relation to Judaism in the books is like terrible things. And this is actually a really nice thing. So there's that. Uh, And then we also have our goblins, right? So we have... um, we also find that there are goblins on the run, right? So just like the Muggleborns uh, who are on the run, we also learn that um, Griphook and Gornuk are on the run. So I think it's telling that we get another return of gobbledygook, which is the language that goblins speak. And a reminder that it's a rough and unmelodious tongue, a string of rattling guttural noises. And also the fact that the goblins remind us that they live outside of regular wizarding society, right? Um, They say, we take no sides. This is a wizard's war. So we talked about this way, way, way back. Gosh, I can't remember what the episode would have been, but it was really early on. First Goblet of Fire episode. Because it's after the... um, it's after the disaster at the Quidditch World Cup that we see those goblins gathered in the clearing trying to get money. Oh my god, I totally forgot about that. Right. So, as I talked about in that episode, there has historically been this assumption that Jews who live in European societies are not integrated and therefore do not participate in scare quotes, European concerns, right? And so the fact that even the goblins who are on the run, who are implicated in the violence of Voldemort's rise to power, the fact that they still claim that they are not of one side or the other, I think is, is really, it's really frustrating to read it and to be like, okay, I guess even at our most swarthy, we'll never really, (laughs) we'll never really belong. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also telling that the that the goblins see themselves as superior to house elves because there's that reference that one of them makes. The reason he's on the run is that he was requested to do duties ill befitting the dignity of his race and then says, I'm not a house elf. Yeah. Yeah. So like the goblins are not friendly. No, no. (laughs) I probably shouldn't go down this road, but it does remind me of a really wonderful um, series of tweets that our beloved listener, DeBeckel, recently posted Mm -hmm. about the ways in which Jewish people are sometimes complicit in Mm -hmm. anti-blackness, which when we think about, you know, the role of the house elves we've been talking about in the ways that they fill this slave position, the Mm -hmm. sort of insistence on the part of the goblins that they are not house elves does seem significant. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because if we are still correct that despite the existence of Anthony Goldstein and his grandmother, goblins remain the Semites of the wizarding world. The fact that they are actively complicit in racial hierarchies is really important and significant and telling and deeply troubling. Yep. Yep. Etc. 
So this gets us into a conversation about exactly what kind of fascist regime we are seeing playing out, right? Because I think the temptations are very much there to read Voldemort as a Hitler figure, but the introduction of Grindelwald means that we can now ask whether it is in fact Grindelwald who is the Hitler figure and if we need to instead read Voldemort as something else. I think that there are a few reasons that are a few things about the book that invite us to read Grindelwald and his rise to power as an allegory for World War II and the Nazis. One of that is his Germanic name, his Germanic identity, right? Another one is the fact that the fortress that Grindelwald built is called Nurmengard. He is now imprisoned in his fortress, a Nurmengard. And, um, Nuremberg is surely a reference to Nuremberg. They do sound they, similar. They sure do. Um, Nuremberg being where a majority of the Nazi trials took place, or war crime trials took place. And then the other one is this, this recognition that prior to the rise of Nazism, it was an extremely attractive ideology to a lot of aristocratic Brits. <gasps> yeah, and we see something of that that part of the narrative that part of the history playing out in Dumbledore's youthful indiscretions with Grindelwald and the ways in which he is really tempted by the sorts of you know fascist anti-muggle ideology that Grindelwald is spouting the sort of we need to control them for their own good Mm -hmm. um you know why that might be tempting and that then invites us to think like this is the dark past that Britain is both struggling with and disavowing which is part of Britain's relationship to World War II. And so what is happening with Voldemort is much closer to what actually happened in the 1980s in the UK, which was the sort of re-emergence of fascism under people like Margaret Thatcher that was accompanied by a particularly um, vitriolic white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And the, the way that it has sort of echoes of Nazism, but is not identical to Nazism, much like Voldemort has echoes of Grindelwald, but is not the same kind of bad guy as Grindelwald was. Mm-hmm. I think, too that we can also see the varying forms of fascism in the post 9-11 British and American society making an emergence in these books as well. Um, Because this one was written in like, I don't know, 2007. It was published in 2007. The first one was like 1999, but like most of them have been post 9-11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely not as well versed in... um, contemporary British fascist politics as I am in Canadian and American politics. But post 9-11 North America, like things shifted dramatically in terms of the language that you were allowed to use and the groups of people who were suddenly deemed to be suspicious and needing to be monitored. So like throughout the series, we've been talking a lot about the relationship that these books have had to um, Third Reich politics and Third Reich policy, but we can definitely, if we want to, um, maybe we could just go back in time and start doing this all over again. But um, we can definitely... Let's go back and read the entire thing as being about 9-11. Yeah. 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 We can totally see the way that Islam and the way that uh, Muslim citizens uh, are being deemed as suspicious just by their very being and presence and proximity. Yeah, I mean, sort of Islamophobia in the context of post 9 11 
um, is a kind of guilt that has nothing to do with actions, but is entirely based on identity, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And that we can see that playing out in the way that muggles, by virtue of existing in the world, are presumed to be guilty for some kind of violence or latent possibility of violence against the wizards, mm-hmm. um, much in the way that people just assume, by people I mean Islamophobes, um, assume that Muslims just by very virtue of their identities have this sort of latent capacity for terrorism. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can see muggle-born characters in a lot of ways as standing in for the ways that Muslims in North American and British society are deemed with a kind of suspicion, right? It's like, well, you're here, but you're not like us. You don't come from the same background that we come from. So what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. Which, like now that we're talking about it, I kind of wish that this had occurred to me like five books ago. I feel like we've missed out on so much contemporary political criticism by the very fact that this is that this is coming up in conversation now. <laughs> I guess we just need to start over. I guess so. I guess we just need to reboot the podcast. <laughs> All right, guys, get ready for season two of Witch Please. <laughs> I've cracked it. The actual best thing about our newfound fame. We can be as loudly, emphatically, belligerently feminist as we like, and people will find it charming. It's time for Granger Danger! So I don't know what to make of the fact that Hermione insists on paying for the food that they acquire. Like, I don't know why that stuck out to me. I No, I do know why it stuck out to me. It's because the book makes a point of any time Hermione gets food. I think it happens twice. But, but both times, the narrator tells us that Hermione made sure to pay for it. And I don't, I guess I just don't know what the point of that is. I have a theory. And that theory is that, you know, Hermione is, she's our muggle-born heroine. And one of her main characteristics is that, more so than Harry, who grew up with muggles but didn't like them, Hermione still identifies as a muggle, as part of the muggle world. And that gesture of respect is a gesture of like recognizing the systems upon which the muggle world works, recognizing her ability to sort of have influence on muggles that she interacts with, like recognition that stealing food from like a small grocery store, mm-hmm. like they're going through small towns, like that could it would be a real problem for that store owner, right? Or that grocery clerk whose till doesn't add up that day and loses their job. Like, she, it's a gesture that shows her taking the muggle world seriously and being part of the wizarding world, but also still part of the muggle world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a significant ethical gesture that points towards how Hermione is a character who practices what she preaches. Mm-hmm. Right. In terms of not just saying like, oh, I think that this attitude against muggles is bad. But like, no, I actually think about muggles as people. Speaking of Hermione and food, what was your response to Ron insisting that the only reason that he makes Hermione do most of the cooking is because she's better at it? I mean, well, obviously that's true because that's why women historically have been cooks. Right. That's why that's the domestic labor that we do. We're just like naturally better at cooking than men are so you know obviously (laughs) no of course not how dare you how dare you ron how dare you pre-redemption ron 
It's really outrageous. There are just a couple of moments in here where we see Hermione reacting to the kind of shit that women have said to them all the time. And I just love the way she reacts. Like when Ron says that, she's just like, fuck you, Ron. I hate you, Ron. That's a special shout out for our Mabim Bam listeners. It's really good. <laughs> oh my God. Let's get a Mabim Bam Harry Potter mashup t-shirt that says, I hate you, Ron. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, the other one is when Ron has gotten back and Hermione is furious at him for abandoning them. And um, Harry tells her to calm down. (gasps) And she goes ballistic at him. Which is, as we have described in previous episodes, nothing makes me angrier than somebody telling me to calm down. The one thing that makes me angrier than being told to calm down is being told to chillax. (laughs) As though the, like, combination of the words chill and relax is anything but outrageous and offensive. That's never happened to me. I have a higher caliber of companion. It's worth spending a little bit more time thinking about why it is that Hermione is not interested in following up on this Deathly Hallows lead and instead wants to stay focused on the Horcruxes, right? Because she she has this very orderly sense of how things work and of how they need to proceed. This sort of very logic-driven, like... We know what we are here to do. Hermione is a great reader and a really bad improviser. Mm -hmm. I mean, much like her suspicion of marginalia, Mm -hmm. right? Her suspicion of improvisation is similar. Okay. So we haven't finished the book. So at this point where we're at, we know that there are two options before us. There's the Horcruxes and there's the Hallows. And we see that Harry has given up more or less on the Horcruxes because he wants to put all of his energies into the Hallows. So like, I want to talk about this taking for granted that neither of us knows what happens at the end of the book, which you've never read before. So the Hallows are supposed to make one the master of death, but we know that unless the Horcruxes are destroyed, Voldemort cannot die. And so for me, Hermione's insistence that they stay focused on the task of collecting and destroying the Horcruxes is further evidence of her continued ability to understand the big picture, right? Because even if they abandon their search for Horcruxes, find the Elder Wand, and if Harry is correct that he has the Resurrection Stone in that snitch, it might keep him from dying, but that won't allow him to kill Voldemort because Voldemort is still immortal, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, her refusal to get sidetracked by the Hallows, that to me is like a really clear reminder that Hermione is always right. And even though there are other things that are shiny and exciting, sometimes you have to wrap up the task at hand before you move on to other projects. (laughs) Stay focused, guys. The last thing we want to talk about is Luna. We don't actually get to meet Luna in these chapters, but we do get two sort of brief glimpses of what Luna's life is like when we go and actually see her house and meet her father. Who is just the worst mansplainer we've ever encountered in these books. Like, my God. Well, like, when Hermione points out the dangerous weapon that he has on his wall, and he's like, uh, actually, that's a Crumblehorn Snorkak. And Hermione's like, no, it's not. That's a bomb hanging on your wall. You need to get rid of it. And he's like, oh, stupid girl. (laughs) And then surprise, Hermione's right. Yeah. And in the next chapter, when 
Harry is insisting on the Deathly Hallows being the thing they need to focus on and trying to dismiss Hermione's suspicions, he repeats Xenophilius Lovegood's criticism of Hermione in his own head. Which seems significant. But the other thing that we see is the mural that Luna has painted on the ceiling of her bedroom, um, which is the faces of Harry and Ron and Hermione and Neville and herself and Ginny, and Ginny all connected by chains that say friends. Oh, friends. She made a friendship mural. It's so beautiful. And I equally love the fact that when Harry sees that he doesn't pity her, he doesn't think it's silly. He just thinks it's really lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Luna's a great character. She is. I love, I love them pointing out, acknowledging how tough she is. And I also really like the recognition that meeting her father helps them realize that she is, I don't know. It seems clear in this, in that scene that the subtext is that, you know, she's become like her father as a result of being raised by him, but she's actually a much more critical thinker than he is. And she's much more with it. Like she might seem a little loopy, but she's still, she's still a super tough character. Luna would never pull what her father pulled in this scene. I'm beginning to suspect that being internet celebrities isn't all it's cracked up to be. Or maybe we're just doing it wrong? Should we stop talking about print culture and narrative perspective and feminism all the time? How often should we be wearing sunglasses? God, I have so many questions! Thank goodness it's time for final revisions! Alright, this week it is my turn to ask you questions, Marcel, and I have three, but I'm hoping that they will be quite brief. Okay, so the first question, they use polyjuice potion a lot in this book. I seem to recall from the second book, first time they use Polyjuice Potion, that it doesn't change your voice. Am I recalling incorrectly, or does Polyjuice Potion change the sound of your voice? I can't remember if it changes your voice or not in the text, but I think it should change your voice, because if your whole body changes, so too do your is the shape of your vocal cords, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't make sense that if you normally have, like, a, a high-pitched squeaky voice, and then all of a sudden you're in, like, a great big towering body with, like, huge set of lungs, that, like, you would still have a teeny little squeaky voice. So my answer is, I don't remember, but it should. Okay. Right. Who cares what the text says? Second question. Which Deathly Hallow would you choose and why? That is, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful question. I think I wouldn't want the stone because I think it's hard enough already to recover from grief and loss without the temptation to constantly, um, call those beloved people who who you've lost back to you. Um, I think that that would make it really hard for me to move on. So I wouldn't want the stone. And as much as my brother-in-law refers to me as, as being, like, distinctly confrontational, I don't think I'm confrontational enough to, to make use of an elder wand. I think for me that would just be more stressful than anything else. I think I'm, like, too afraid of hurting people's feelings um, to use an elder wand. 
people's primary thing wants to do is hurt people's feelings. You cast spells to hurt people's feelings. I mean, I I would want the people I was battling and dueling with to feel like they were doing a good job, you know? Anyway, so I think I would want the Cloak of Invisibility, and I don't say that because that's the answer that Hermione gives, or because that's the answer that Beetle's tail implies is the best answer, but I think it would genuinely be the thing I would find most useful and that I would feel safest using. What about you? Wand. You're braver than me. I'm very aggressive. Assertive. (laughs) Whenever women are assertive, our patriarchal culture has taught us that we're being aggressive. You're not aggressive, Hannah. You're assertive. I'm assertive. I'm assertive and I would like to assert things with a wand. (laughs) (laughs) Wink. Uh, Final question. What's the significance of Hermione's ongoing struggle with Expecto Patronum? I can honestly say that I've never really thought about it before now. Which strikes me as being silly. Because if there's one spell that Hermione has trouble producing, and she's quite competent and capable, why would this be it? I wonder if it's because being muggle-born and being um, as much of an overachiever as she is, she struggles the most with imposter syndrome and no amount of perfect scores on all of her exams will ever allow her to believe that she truly belongs in the wizarding world. And because of that, she's not able to conjure um, the same kind of happy memories to charge an Expecto Patronum the way that Harry is, because for Harry, being part of the Wizarding World was like a tremendous relief. Whereas for Hermione, it is ongoing self-doubt and alienation and a lack of belonging. Yeah, so I think Hermione's relationship to the Wizarding World is, is just too fraught for her to be able to produce a Patronus with the same ease that other characters can. I have another theory, though. (laughs) My sub-theory. So we learn that it's an otter, and apparently an otter is a weasel, and this is supposed to be evidence that Hermione and Ron are soulmates because because her Patronus is a weasel, so she, like, belongs to him. Because he's a Weasley? Because he's a Weasley. I know, right? Do that again. (laughs) So maybe it's because, like, deep down inside, she's actually really embarrassed that she's in love with Ron. It's adorable. (laughs) Those are both good theories. I like the first one more. (laughs) Thank you, listeners new and old, for joining us for episode 13B of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca. Subscribe to us on iTunes or any other platform you prefer, including soon or maybe already now, Google Play. Uh, If you want to rest your weary head on a throw pillow that also has our famous and beautiful faces, why not check out our sweet new merch available at society6.com slash ohwitchplease, and that's society6.com slash ohwitchplease, or through the link on our website. Special thanks, as always, to Trevor Chow-Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? Our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts. And unsmiling nods or whatever celebrities do to our many new Twitter followers, including but not limited to V. Pilar, El Borgon, Morello Media, Nemo's Winter, Matt Domville, 
Bethan R. Wallace, Bronte Coates, Alexa Villome, Keely Galgano, Katerina Hoven, Emily Hoven, Laddie Arnold, S.J. O'Brien 87, Liv Reads 123, Mystic Warrior, Last Nora, Rosie Powell, Kat Manica, The Mirage Child, Scriptorium Girl, J. Andrew Dick, S. Cheer, Danicdote, Debeckle, Ms. Laura Lipstick, Karina Soros, Sophie Biblio, O'Brietta, Keels223, Paula Gabrielis, Merid Dithering, One Smart Cupcake, Hater Pet, Guts Magazine, Whiteley Rose, Mom Streeter, Ellie Kincaid, Saxalaxon, Allison Baker01, JV Purcell, Jenny B, Neil Politan, Dear Elena, Virginia Wolf, Ballroom Pink, Jeannie Kim, Megan Andy, Elise KW, It's Just Roar, Anime June, The Kalesa, Two Bossy Dames, Physics Katie, Pima Monahan or Monaghan. I think the G's probably silent. SD Fifey is a grapefruit. Anne Fine, Ifya S, Our Lady of Cats, Mel Dalgleish, Obo Chica 88, B to the X, Flo Dot, Lala Toadstone, Mariah Mitsuda, J Max SFU, Terry Lee McGarry, The Lulu Tree, Mad Peterson, Rosa Bielski, Sparrow Swain, and Bix. <laughs> Marvelously done, as always. Our next episode will be our final discussion of Book 7, and we'll probably have a lot of feelings in it. So brace yourselves. But until then, later, witches. Wanted UK is the provider of single source media data for agencies, media owners, brands and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader from Adwanted UK.